and I don't know what I'm doing. All these settings are so messed up. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast, or the under-contented YouTube channel of Benjamin A. Boyce. Under-contented because it's June, and I don't know why. It just seems like in June, I just like, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to say. I'm really freaking tired of the culture war, but I have a great interview for you with Libby Emons, who's not tired of the culture war. And actually, she's producing more than just culture warrior content on The Federalist and The Postmillennial, and as well, Quillette, the perfect person to cancel. And you guessed it, she's been canceled. We talk about her cancellation. We talk about the New York theater scene. We talk about what it means to come up with good ideas and put them into writing, among a host of other humane and human topics. So this is a really freaking hot room because it is literally a padded cell and it's situated in a field and there's a lot of sun out there. So I'm going to get off uh, with you and get on with or get it on so to speak, with Libby Emons. So you popped up on my radar, I think, when I read one of your Quillette pieces about you uh-huh. not being able to write because of uh, the certain ideological frameworks that are alive and well within the theater, independent theater realm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, what was the story with that? Yeah, basically, there's an ideological framework at work in the... Um, theater community, academic theater community. And the idea is that everyone has the same perspective and that if you don't have the same perspective, you know, your work is not really valued. Um, Or at least if you express that perspective. But the other piece of it had to do with, um, and the bigger piece, I think what I was talking about was what you're allowed to, what a writer, it's like the stay in your lane thing. So a writer needs to stay in their lane with regard to the type of characters they can write about. And that is directly correlated to the person's background. So as a, you know, white man, you can write about white men. However, um, the industry should not be producing plays either written by or about white men. So what are the white male writers supposed to write about? Are they even supposed to write plays? Then there's this whole thing of um, uh, white men really need to take a step back, right? So this idea that if you are white and male in the in the theater community, you should step back and listen. And that kind of ties into the progressive stack that started making an appearance with um, mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. So, yeah. So what I think is totally missed in this, in this whole... Um, discussion of who gets to write what and what kind of work, you know, we should be showing on American stages. Uh, What's missing is that we all just want to make work. It doesn't, we only have one life. We can't just cordon ourselves off because of the going opinion on what someone like us can do. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, so that's, that's mostly what I was writing about. I started, um, I hadn't even been intending to write about that at all. Uh, and it was interesting because I went to a meetup for Quillette writers in Toronto in the end of January, um, which was really a lot of fun. It was, there were all these canceled people there. <laughs> it was like, Oh, Hey, look, my canceled people. <laughs> um, so, so that was really fun. Uh, but I ended up sitting and talking to Toby young and we were talking about theater 
And I told him this phenomenon that I had experienced and that other writers I knew had experienced and that it was just, um, it's just how it is. There's no conversation about whether or not it should be that way in the American theatrical academic circles and independent theater circles. That's just how it is. And it's accepted that it ought to be that way. So he was like, oh, you should really write that up. Uh, so I did. So that's that's how I ended up writing about that. Well, what happens if all the white men go into a corner and start doing their own stage theatrics and start their own well, academies and run their own businesses and just go away and be excluded won't they just be called segregationalists or or white supremacists i mean isn't that sure i mean going if, to if you if you to? get an audience the question is who's your audience so that's the other piece of it with theater theater requires an audience um most of the people that buy theater tickets are women most of the plays that are presented are written by and directed by men there's there's been a shift, I think, recently. I don't have any stats for this, but just walking through Times Square, where I um, am frequently because I'm in a writer's group at the Actors Studio, so on Tuesday I end up with everybody else in Times Square walking through. Um, there's There seems to be a bunch of people now who are presenting work on Broadway that are not white men or not straight white men. Although that's not new. I mean, homosexuality in theater has always been pretty well accepted and totally fine with everybody. Um, but I'm seeing more women directors, I think, on Broadway, more women writers. And that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, ha the best work should be the work that comes forward. Yeah. 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 But if the whole thing with theater is about an audience. So what happened with my theater company where... Um, I basically got kicked out and then they closed. I've had friends who say, um, oh, well, I would still do work with you. I would be glad to do work with you. You know, we should get something together. And I'm not going to produce something if I have a feeling that it's going to be a huge pain in the ass to get audience. It's already difficult to get audience. It's already difficult to get people to come out. Everyone would rather just stay in their house and watch Netflix. Um, and in New York, it's so annoying because... Hmm. Um, Everybody lives really far away. So we used to have a thing where all the artists would end up downtown. So you'd be in the West Village, you'd be in the East Village, Lower East Side, whatever, Nolita. Artists would be hanging out. And if you wanted to go see your friends, you would like go to a bar and you'd see everybody. But now what we have is like a New York indie artist diaspora. Every neighborhood has artists in it. And they are doing their work wherever they can find space. Um, often for the audiences that will go to that neighborhood and the localized hmm. places where artists used to just all meet up are not there anymore. So if you're trying to produce work downtown in New York, you have to find a place where everyone's going to be willing to come from Astoria, which is on the subway two hours from where I am in South Brooklyn or Washington Heights or wherever it is that everybody lives. And then everyone's going to want to turn around and make sure they catch the last express train home hmm. because we just all live so far apart. Even in the 2000s, after the mass exodus to Williamsburg, you still had Williamsburg and the Lower East Side as places where everyone would go hang out. Then Williamsburg became um, less of an arts community. So now it's artsy. Yeah. Right. But like $2,000 one bedroom apartments. So yeah. then people moved to Greenpoint. Um, 
Bushwick, Ridgewood, and eventually there was no place that was a local hub for artists. Now, I guess okay. it would be kind of Bushwick-ish, like Bushwick, there's a lot of artists out there. When you go out there, there's good happy hours and um, mm. interesting shows that you can go see, like at House of Yes or the Bushwick Star, but it's still not, and maybe it is for the for the young people out there, maybe it's localized for them. Um, but it used to be all ages. I mean, we'd go downtown to hang out and we'd see Taylor Mead, who was part of Andy Warhol's factory, where this crazy homeless poet called Bingo Gazingo would be performing. Mm -hmm. And he always did this poem about J-Lo and how he wanted to sleep with J-Lo. And it was so weird. Um, but I don't know where you go to see a guy like Bingo Gazingo anymore. Yeah, I don't know if that's even possible. Taylor Mead eventually, like, he got kicked out of his apartment and he basically died from that. You know, his apartment was his heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's really so difficult to make an upfront investment of your time and all that travel to produce yeah. something. And then to ensure that not, not only can you get all the pieces together, but can you get the audience together after mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. And if they don't like you anymore, because you said something about how, men aren't women there's absolutely no reason to try and produce you, anything at all did you literally say that or you just used did i say that did that you actually women? did you say that oh that's yeah that turned into a problem for me as oh, well you, you're one of those people who said that oh yeah i i am one of those people that said that in writing about politics i don't I don't want to like use that disparagingly. It just seems like mm -hmm. you have uh, a lot of work that talks about political uh, things. Yeah. With, or I would at call least it with culture. But okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a, there's a political cultural crossover, and I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the what you've learned about theater and how we are performing politics, and if there's like kind of a critique or an understanding that you bring to what you see going on in current discourse, let's say around political or cultural uh, mm. actions. Uh, that have a theatrical nature to it or could be understood theatrically. But I do think that there is a very performative aspect to culture. And I think that a big thing that's going on is that um, we're all constantly vying for control of the narrative. That's okay. the most important thing that's going on. Uh, when a story breaks, one of the first things you hear is, don't think about the story this way think about it that way. Don't mm -hmm. use this kind of word. Use this kind of word to describe the story. Um, and it's all about feeding how we talk about things and how we structure the story of the news as opposed to what the news actually is. Hmm. More important than any story is how it's told. Yeah. Uh, and I I think that this is, this is a wild, wild time to be writing culture because of that. Mm -hmm. Because there's whose narrative is going to win. And then you even can see some of the stuff in real time happen. So when Trump started saying, when he started saying fake news, it was, you know, this stupid thing. Um, and we all were like, ah, fake news. Like that's such a, that's some bullshit what he's talking about there. You know, that just, there's no fake news. He's making it up. And now people say fake news, you know, yeah. to their friends, you know, they're like, oh, you said you were going to meet me at seven. That's fake news. Yeah. It's, you know, completely embedded in our parlance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but we can't go through the news 
without some sort of structuring happening with the information. Like the information has to be structured some way. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I suppose over time you, okay, so I, I do that. I do reportage or at least I do a right. lot of editorializing or I respond to editorializing stuff. And I, I, I play the narrative battle game. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. a cultural war, but it is a, a narrative tussle. Right. And it's certainly fun. Over time, yeah, it's fun. Like I, I get into a, a contention with an idea or a, a viewpoint that I don't like, and I wrestle with that, and and then the byproduct is that which everybody sees and digests, and then mm -hmm. wrestles with or agrees with. Right. Um, but over time, it, it becomes apparent that I, I start to slide towards one side of the narrative, or, or start sliding right. to this well, other sure. side of the narrative. And I don't know if I necessarily want to end up in any one camp, but I do. My biases, uh, liberally construed and not not progressively construed, but I, I'm just like my my basic makeup starts to develop a pattern of what what I'm attracted to, what I'm attracted against. In, a, in I guess is the way that I I select what I do talk about because I'm attracted uh -huh. against that thing. Um, right. Yeah, I know what you mean. So I just wonder, like, what do you think about, like, as a writer, like, on this on this cultural stage, on this news-ish po political stage, like, mm -hmm. like, do you do you have like thoughts about how your narrative starts to form or or how it's been forming and how you try to violate oh, like your personally? own narrative in a way? Yeah, like, like your, in your a personal own standpoint. Yeah, I pretty much try and question everything. Hmm. So if I have like, what was it the other day? So here's here's an example of something. So in New York City, the um, Bill de Blasio, he's our he's our mayor. He uh, oh, I guess he's running for president with like twenty five thousand other people. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I have a dollar. I'll uh, donate to your campaign if right. you want. Yeah, go ahead. So okay, yeah. So there's these. Uh, so his administration started this new thing where there are these subway advertisements for naloxone, which is the the thing that will sort of like an EpiPen for fentanyl overdoses. Oh, okay. I think, from what I could gather from the subway advertisement. And I took a picture of it because it was talking about how everyone should carry around one of these naloxone things so that you too can prevent overdoses. <laughs> and something about That's this really... Yeah. Something huh. about this really, really ticked me off. I And I have not figured out what it is about this that makes me feel so incredibly oppositional and negative about the idea that we should all be carrying around naloxone pens or whatever they are so that we yeah. can prevent overdoses. I mean, are you supposed to carry these around like if you're an addict or, and so then I started looking it up and it talks about how uh, you should only do drugs with a friend. Okay, uh, all right. Okay. So it's like the buddy system for drugs and I've done a heap, a heap of drugs in my lifetime. Uh, As you would have friends. had to, to live in New York and be successful at what you do. Sure. Well, plus I went to Sarah Lawrence College, so, you know. Oh, that's a... yeah. Well, yeah, The, there you the kids go. don't seem like they're doing enough drugs these days at Sarah Lawrence I College. I think that's but, a yeah. problem, too. <laughs> I thoroughly agree. Uh, I started doing drugs when I got to college, not before. Um, but anyways, the whole point is doing drugs with friends. I just, something about this whole, trying to speak to your point, something about this whole naloxone campaign really pissed me off. And the way that the administration in New York is dealing with this whole drug use thing 
for some reason is really annoying me in a way that light exchange, for example, didn't. The, that like, I don't didn't? really have a problem. I mean, needle exchange. Okay. Intravenous drug users. I think in lots of major cities, you could bring your dirty needles and swap them out so that you wouldn't be uh, using the same needles as other people and then spreading AIDS. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm questioning why does this naloxone thing really piss me off? I have not been able to write about it because I have no idea what makes me so oppositional it's, about it's it. But I'm, because it, I'm it, questioning this whole thing. And I'm going to dig into it until I know okay. what it is about it that I find infuriating. Yeah. And that's what I do with, with most things. So if I come up against something and it instantly pisses me off, I try and take a step back and figure out why hmm. and what standard you know, what standard I'm using to be pissed off. Like, why is it that I find that so uh, onerous or whatever? A lot of times it's free speech stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm really like a all speech should be free speech kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm very individual rights over, over the rights of the group. Um, Mm -hmm. Very interested in the, you know, better that a, thousand guilty people go free then one innocent person is locked up yeah. but that's those are typically my my bents in one of the articles of yours that talks about uh, i think the title it's in quillette and the title is why do people keep on telling me not to write or something like that you spoke about your writing group in your undergraduate time at sarah lawrence and how uh you have this passage in that article about you guys were kind of working through things and just throwing everything mm-hmm. onto the page. And it was, it That's seemed right. like it, you, you mentioned that it was a kind of therapy. Um, mm. And I was thinking about, um, there's this aspect to the arts that is therapeutic, that is cathartic. And there's also an aspect to activism uh, mm-hmm. that takes on a therapeutic, cathartic, actorial, artistic kind of bet, which is kind of the fascinating part about these college protests that I've been covering because I was thrust into the middle of it when I was going to undergraduate uh, school. Um, and, right, because you were at Evergreen? I, yeah, I was at Evergreen, and, and I was I was yeah. on campus when Evergreen did the Evergreen thing um, mm-hmm. that it's known for. And what I right. saw build up with that was that more and more of the uh, like these these training sessions about equity and diversity and more and more classes were kind of taking this therapeutic approach to education where we're there to help solve these problems, but not these societal mm-hmm. problems. We dress them up as these institutional problems, but it always took on this kind of therapeutic dramaturgy psychodrama esque uh, thing where, where we confess oh, our guilt sure. and, and, yeah. and we, or we berate the person or, or we berate ourselves. And I was thinking about how, even though the arts, let's just say writing does have a, does use that, that therapy ish kind of bent of working out one's problems or what you're talking about with, I'm going to work out why I'm angry. The byproduct mm-hmm. of it seems different when when it's aimed towards producing a work of art, when, when it's aimed towards producing a work, like a piece where other people can look at it, like a, like a, a, an article in in a journal Mm -hmm. or whatever, there's something different than what I perceive in this activist kind of culture or this theatrical activism culture where the work itself is that blowing up and, and is the work itself is, uh, in, in finding the conditions for that, 
the blow up to occur? I think what you're looking at is the in the difference between um, art and activism is objectivity. So for an artist who is creating work, there is the um, it's almost like there's the river. There's the there's the river that you can tap into. There's the I think Haruki Murakami calls it that it's like a hmm. it's the emotions. It's the experiences that you've had. Um, it's all of those different things. Uh, for me, it's almost like all of those things are, are a palette. So there's all the experiences that I've had. There's the emotional realities that I've experienced as differentiated from the necessarily physical experiences that I've had. Um, because an emotional reality, if you have an emotional uh like an emotional life, which obviously we all do, but you can take, for example, uh, something that happened to you that's relatively minor that gave you an emotional spark and apply it to something else. And that's sort of, um, that's like method acting. So, you know, an example, and maybe this is the bad version, but an example would be like, um, there was a time when my parents played a practical joke on me and, uh, left me in a parking lot in Florida and drove away. Um, and I had these overwhelming feelings of abandonment and anger and frustration. Um, and I didn't think it was funny at all. You know, I don't remember how old I was. <laughs> Maybe I was Jesus. like, I don't know, 11. I don't know. Anyways, so they did that, right? So they abandoned me in this parking lot for two, three minutes, five minutes, maybe at the most. Okay. Um, and, you know, they pulled back around and they were drunk because they were assholes and they were laughing. So, <laughs> okay, I, this is my abandonment experience. I've, you can take that emotional reality that you had for that five minutes okay. and you can apply it to any abandonment experience, no matter how rich or deep or even more horrifying than five minutes in a, I don't know, crab shack. I don't remember what my point is. Oh, right, objectivity. So yeah. you can tap into all of this stuff. You can use all of this stuff that you have at your disposal, like it's just color that you can paint with. Um, but you also have the ability to uh, not have to feel the things, right? Because you're using them. Hmm. Hmm. You know what I mean? My having a weird day. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's interesting. Um, so so there, there's a removal. So you can use the all this stuff. The, the removal yeah. is in that you are using the thing. It's not a, it's right. not a detachment. It's uh, right. You're using the thing. Yeah. These pieces of my life, a lot of the work I infuse with my own personal experiences and emotional reality um, as well. Like, I was really happy. I, I reviewed Rocket Man recently, which I loved this film. I just read that. But one. I infused it. Yeah, I, refused, I I infused that with like a lot of my own emotional reality and things that I've experienced because the film. Um, it was. I really loved that film. Anyways, uh, but you can use that stuff. So then you have this objective frame of mind where you're looking at. To go back to my example, the experience <laughs> of abandoned or cadmium yellow over here, um, and you are painting with it you are using that whether you're writing fiction you can now apply your abandonment experience whether you're uh writing a song or you're you know painting whatever it is you can use these things uh and you have that frontal lobe where 
Uh, you can bounce everything in there and it gives you this feeling of, you know, you're slightly removed from it. Um, mm -hmm. I had an experience I was talking to, I was at a dinner and um, I was actually, I was talking to Deborah So and I was telling her how my reading my blog and she keeps reading my work and then calling me and saying things like, oh, honey, honey, are you okay? I didn't know you felt this way. And I'm like, mom, I don't feel that way. I wrote it down. That doesn't mean I'm I'm feeling this stuff. Okay. Like I wrote it down, you know, um, because you don't need to, and you can feel it when you write it, but then you don't need to hang on to it because it's a, it's in service to a product. It's in service to, yes. you know, a work product. Um, it's, it's to be shared. But then with the activism, it's, there is no product. The product is the outrage. The product is the um, spreading of awareness, which you can only do with your loudest voice. There's also this trend hmm. now in arts where uh, the new thing is, you know, maybe a couple of years old, probably since Trump, right? The idea is that things are so bad right now that all of the artwork needs to be in service to um, resisting and opposing Trump. So mm -hmm. instead of calling themselves artists, people are now calling themselves artivists because they're oh, like okay. art activists. Yeah. yeah. And the work is way less funny. It has way less of an emotional punch. Huh. It super takes itself seriously. Yeah. And um, it, it doesn't have the same kind of removal. And I first experienced this. There was a uh, there's this project called um, One Minute Play Festival. And it happens all over the country and it's run by this little company and that's what they, that's like their whole thing. That's what they do. Um, and there was a, what's called a rapid response shortly after Trump, there was this like rapid response, one minute play festival. And uh, there was like a whole meeting on a whiteboard and it was super intense and everybody had to resist everything. And the work was short, but it was so um, heartfelt and not serious. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, not funny. It was definitely not funny. It was very serious. And all it was about was resistance without any real substance underneath it. Yeah. Okay. You know, so I think that's what happens. That's the difference between when you're creating something, because when you're creating something, you don't really care about anything else, but the thing you're creating Sorry if okay. you can hear that helicopter. I don't know what's going on. That's fine. Yeah. Um, you don't care about anything but the thing you're creating. Like when I'm writing one of like an article on something, the only thing I care about is that it's a good and honest article. Okay. You know, that it's, that it's clear and forthright. You know, that's what I care about. It, it, there's a and, and a good read, that it's a good read. That's the most important part. Yeah, there's this interesting aspect to what you were just saying to capitulate that, or no, to condense it all. You were saying, it seems like there's a, when there's a lack of removal in the artist, it leads to a lack of connection somehow between the the art and the audience in this weird way. I think way. that makes and sense. It makes me think of, uh, you know, fledgling artists or really young uh you know, I guess high school drama people where they put so much anger into that angry statement that there's nothing but that, that acting, that act mm -hmm. of 
acting anger. There's so yeah. there's this interesting, um, almost kind of Zen or uh, this kind of like uh, this contemplative tradition or this mystic tradition where the more you can remove yourself from what you're providing, the more what you're trying to provide has room to actually connect to the other. I think that makes sense. People. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There has to be that space of removal. Because otherwise you're not communicating mm. anything. Yeah. You're just expressing. Yeah. And it's 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 the act of removal that makes it so that you are communicating as opposed to just expressing. It's like a primal scream doesn't do anything for the person who's hearing it. Yeah. 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 Which is which is interesting because it seems like to go back to the first thing that you were describing about that perspective or that forced enforced perspective within that little theater theater community where everybody has mm-hmm. to has, have the same perspective that everybody can only have their own perspectives, um, which which kind of goes into this. What is it to actually describe a, another human being's experience? Is it just all these mm. different factors or vectors of oppression? And I know that mm-hmm. intersectionality isn't the intersectionality. The original there's a academic intersectionality, right. and then there's this yeah. there's this other intersectionality. There's this derogatory or derivative intersectionality. Well, the academic intersection intersectionality, yeah. But the first the first um, the first description made a lot of sense, and it was like I forget who it was. It was a was it a woman in California. Yeah, who was describing an actual phenomenon. And I think we run into trouble when we take these things that are actual phenomenons and decide that we can apply them all over the place and with hmm. every conceivable hmm. iteration. Like if you look at the um, if you look at the civil rights movement, right? Um, and which was hugely important and integral to American development as a egalitarian society. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at if you look at the way that that went down afterwards, so you had um, and where we landed with like PC and all that stuff, what we ended up with was the language of racism being applied to all these other aspects of identity, all these other like identity groups, and it really only works with racism. Could you give so an example? Have, like, are, are, yeah. are, you, are you talking about like the LGBT community? Yeah. So all, all of that stuff. So if you look at, uh, okay. So by the time I was in high school, it was the nineties. Nobody had time for anybody to be racist anymore. Good. Right. There's nobody should be racist by the time it's the 1990s. It's just, it's, it's a, it doesn't even make any sense. It's a completely irrational way to live your life. Mm. So there was this, you know, there was this thing where it would be like, uh, I remember I had this friend, Aaron, and he was talking about how he had met somebody who was racist uh, in college. And he was explaining how he was thinking as he was talking to this guy, please stop talking before I have to hate you. Right. Because the guy was like this racist guy from the South or whatever. um, Mm. And you just kind of have to be like being racist. This is horrible. I can't even mm. talk to you. You're so racist. It's terrible. That makes sense. That kind of makes sense. It's like our entire culture is pushing in this direction where you shouldn't be racist. And how can you still be racist? Like, could you just do some thinking about this, please? And get your shit yeah. together. Stop being racist. Um, and you'd have people who said things like, I can't even talk to you anymore. You know, your perspective is so ludicrous that we can't even have a conversation because you're this horrible racist. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
that doesn't work with all the other things, right? So if you're then at a party and you're talking to somebody and you're discussing, you know, we can go back to the abortion thing, for example, because that's everywhere. Uh, There's the states that are like, no abortion after five seconds from conception. And then there's the states that are like, you can kill your baby when they're 20. You know, it's like, there's no, anyway. So, <laughs> um, but with abortion or whatever, you'd see, you'd see people at parties in the 2000s having conversations about political ideas, not racism. And the language of anti-racism of, I can't even talk to you anymore because you're a racist, uh, became, I can't even talk to you anymore because we disagree and you're triggering me. Yeah. That's not where that kind of language belongs. That language belongs with, the civil rights movement and anti-racism, which are hugely mm-hmm. essential, and mm-hmm. you can't apply it to everything. Mm-hmm. It's it not seems, all the same thing. It, it seems like what sense? you're pointing to, and, and this is something that I've thought about too, uh, and there's a number of different ways to thinking about this, but there's a legacy of that we inherited from the civil rights movement. And in order to... Uh, and and there is work to do to continue uh, softening boundaries and and allowing people to recognize each other as people. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's that that legacy of language that needs to be upgraded. And there's different ways that you can upgrade that language, or there's different ways that you need to upgrade the frame of mind of change itself of how you go about changing. And so, well, like, I what, think it's okay for la- I think that language is okay for the civil rights movement for. Yeah anti-racism i just don't think it can be broadly applied to you Mm. know you and i disagreeing over oat milk yeah okay so are you saying that in a certain respect with that small community that you were or still are involved in in that theater community that there is a rigidity of thought that is kind of inherited from some sort of progressive tradition or some sort of like i do think so and i think that it's not just inherited but i think it's um uh self-sustaining and increasing really and what is it about this that makes it uh, sustain and increase to use that viral metaphor what what keeps it self-perpetuating i think what i think what's doing it right now is the um is the political discourse of vying for control of this narrative nobody reads the other side so when i first published in quillette the article that eventually became what um got me kicked out of my theater company i published that in july of last year and no one in the theater community really read it until october and that's Mm. when the shit hit the fan Mm. it like took that long because no one no one reads outside their bubble yeah okay yeah so uh, moving towards solutions is there Uh. a way to tell stories that (laughs) opens up narratives that that uh causes the narrative war to take on a different form do you have any thoughts about how we can go about what do you mean if if we are all vying for narratives or if there are these Mm -hmm. narratives that are vying out there for control Mm -hmm. over what's happening or how to frame what's happening is there the possibility of a narrative or even a narrative style that turns that that conflict of how to define things and how to look at the world into like some sort of generative. I'm just saying, how do you tell a story to people to get them to want to read other kinds of stories? How do you, how do you write about political issues in a way that, that opens up discourse and doesn't just reify 
a certain interpretation or falls into a, a stack of reification of certain interpretations? Oh, well, it's all the stuff nobody wants. It's nuance. It's hmm. considered research. Um, it's finding reasonable points in your opposition's perspective. Mm-hmm. Have you, you know, been successful in, in doing that and, and implementing that? Oh, I have no I, I have no idea. I, I try and write as honestly as possible. Okay. So that's that's been my main goal. Um is to just be Yeah, I mean honesty is the only word for it. Honesty, I guess, as differentiated from um hmm. maybe as differentiated from truth. So I think there's honesty of experience. I think there's mm-hmm. um honesty of emotional consideration. I think there's honesty within moments, honesty of uncertainty, I think. Hmm. Um, and that's what I've always strived to do in my artwork. And I think that what's important there is that we meet each person where they stand. So instead of looking at an individual or and saying like, oh, this this person's identity markers are X, Y, and Z, you just meet them where they stand without any real consideration for what their identity markers might be. Hmm. I don't know why we're always front and center trying to um, make ourselves clearly aligned with specific identities that in and of themselves have political perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, it's like everyone's got to come out, right? Like everyone's got to come out with an identity at this point. And you have like, when you come out with an identity, it has to um, align with who you are, but then you have to align with what it is. So it's a, it's a, it's a double, it's a double thing. Like an identity has to accept you as belonging to that identity as much as you have to accept that identity for yourself. Like the person who identifies gains something by identifying with an identity group yeah. and the identity group must gain something by, you know, and I don't think that this is like, I mean, no, nobody's trading cards, you know what I mean? Like there's no hmm. sign up sheets, um, <laughs> but the identity group must also gain something by having that individual as part of the group. Mm-hmm. So what, what is that sort of, what is that social, social transaction look like? Yeah. I'm really interested in that. I've interviewed uh, a number of uh, detransitioned females who tried out being mm-hmm. men uh, to different mm-hmm. degrees, chemically or socially or just fashion-wise, and uh, and talking about how they plugged into uh, this kind of identity group, this queer trans identity group, and they became activists and they just started being involved in that and then they just started to assimilate more and more of their personality and then when they decided that transitioning to male wasn't for them they also had to transition out of the entire identity group and everything that had been built right. into them on on a software level not just not just purging the testosterone from their their system but they had mm-hmm. to re renegotiate the, their own relationship to their selves um, and then have to right. deal with the fallout of undocking from that identity group that, that's more explicit that makes yeah. that makes so much sense yeah i think that's i think you can say that about a lot of things too like i think that happens in a relationship too um yeah, yeah. you know i was married for 20 years and like the, hmm. the sort of emotional disentanglement habits that i had that were directly related to um whatever behaviors in 
our marriage. I'm like, whoa, that's not. And it's a, it is like an undocking. It's like yeah. a changing your mental process. Yeah. Um, yeah. In order to, in order to like get back to who you are. Yeah, I just wonder, but like, yeah, with a relationship, you, you gain another person in your life, and you guys do co-processing right. and stuff, so it's a very direct and then, like, right. an ongoing yeah. and very deep, pervasive, like, negotiation that's never yeah. really ends. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about, like, a, a group identity, uh, that that takes on a whole nother layer to it. Like, like with right. your theater, you mm-hmm. your group with theater was all around producing plays, like nominally, or at least mm-hmm. at, at the base yeah. material level, that's what it was about. And writing and, and plays writing. and performing plays and yeah. going to see plays, going for drinks after plays. Um, that was my whole friend group. Yeah. And so there's there's yeah. an identity with that, but that identity mm-hmm. is formed and per- performed through action through activity mm-hmm. uh, that's right. not just like you can't just walk down a street and say oh that person's a playwright you know like that's kind of an, an right. in, invisible but identity. there was also there was also some required performance within the community mm-hmm. so when i published with quillette and i talked about um trans ideology and transhumanism which the piece was about transhumanism um a lot of the comments that i got back were to educate myself properly with regard to um critical gender theory yeah so there needed to be, there must be a reason why I had these views and they must have been that I was not properly educated. Hmm. So the performative aspect would have been that I went and further educated myself with regard to critical gender theory and then came back to the group and said, oh, oh, I was wrong. You were right. I have read the critical gender theory. Now hmm. I understand. And I will come back into the fold and, uh, perform your views for you so that Mm -hmm. you do not have to think that, um, Hmm. you know, there's a mistake with the views. It was just a mistake with me. Do you have any thoughts of how that crept in that, that way of thinking of education as basically this person is ignorant because they don't agree with me, which seems pretty, a pretty ignorant stance to take that everybody is different than they. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it, you know, I think part of it traces back to using, and applying it to everything else where it doesn't really belong using using so because you like you could say why is this person racist well probably they just haven't thought it through and they need to be educated yeah yeah okay and that seemed to have a lot more of an impact because racism is completely irrational and people should be able to educate themselves out of racism that seems like that should be possible and i think the entire country took on the idea that we could educate ourselves out of racism. Yeah. And I think we did that to a great extent, at least in the, by the end of the 20th century, mm-hmm. things are moving back in a weird direction now. Yeah. We're um, trying to educate ourselves back into yeah. racism. <laughs> now we're trying to do the other thing. We are learning a lot about like different issues in this world and like, um, what's happening around like we're mostly thinking about like racial and culture our students become empowered we've seen them see that even at the age of four that they can take an active role and be activists and so it's through this work that we realize that education without this conversation isn't going to make a difference for our children but applying the language of educate yourself out of racism into educate yourself that there's no biological reality Mm-hmm. is a completely different situation. Yeah. Um, and 
critical gender theater is theater critical gender theory is fascinating but it's only one lens yeah it's only one pair of glasses you can't just wear them all the time you can look at things that way and say oh that is an interesting perspective i will put that into my repertoire of perspectives that i can have and can consider when i look at things but you can't make it the only perspective yeah it it really does seem that um i was just thinking today about the the impact that racism the story of black and white racism in america or the story of blacks and whites in america has such a powerful uh impact on our culture that it's just it's one dominant narrative that has its tendrils Mm -hmm. and everything i was thinking about that and how do we like start trying to think about a different narrative is there any other narrative than that are we all just beholden to working this out in a thousand different iterations and versions and every aspect of our life because it does seem like it has such a capture or it has captured so much of our imagination on our emotions and mm-hmm. there's good reason for that it's got real powerful weight to it uh, but it does seem like you're saying to that narrative kind of oversteps its bounds or has an impact in places where it, it doesn't work so well yeah i think we're looking at each other these days as though we are avatars and not individuals hmm. with masses of depth of experience and emotional lives yeah we're looking at each other like you are these identities and i am this identity and because your identities are x and my identities are y we are meant to interact with each other in this prescribed way Hmm. it's almost like we're gearing up for um it's like we're gearing up to just exist online okay yeah yeah in little boxes, like in um, E.M. Forrester's Machine Stops. Do you ever read this book? I don't know. It's a no. spectacular novella. So E.M. Forrester wrote this book, I guess, like, I don't know, when was E.M. Forrester writing? Like 1920 or something? Yeah. And he has this He has this book. Um, so Vashti, I believe it's Vashti, is this woman, and she lives in her little studio apartment, and there's a, there's a machine that does everything for her. She has a big telescreen. She communicates with all her friends on telescreen. She can call up any symphony she wants on telescreen. Um, she, she delivers lectures and she hears other people's lectures and they talk about ideas all the time. And yeah. then the machine will say something like, oh, you're waking up in nine and a half hours. You better go to sleep, which is exactly what my computer does Yeah. when it's late and it's like an orange screen and it tells me when I'm supposed to be waking up. So I should know to go to bed. Um, hmm. And so she communicates everything that happens through this machine. Uh, but that's what she is. She's an image on a view screen and she's in her box. Um, and that's, I think what we're aiming to be. We're aiming to be visions on view screens in boxes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that'll be so much easier to do if we box ourselves. Hmm. And then also advertisers will know what to sell us because we will be exhibiting our, you know, box Hmm. face. We'll be able to tell them what it is that we are. And they will be able to say, Oh, all of the other people who our identity marker X want orange pants. So you must want orange pants also. And then they will just sell us orange pants and maybe they'll just have it on a subscription model and we won't even have to order the orange pants. They'll just send them to us every month. Do you Um, find yourself perversely attracted to this dystopian? Oh, for sure. Yeah, of course. Aren't we all, we all are just trying to figure out when it ends, but yeah, I mean the, the transhumanist model or the humanity plus idea where we're just moving into this future where we're going to be fully integrated with AI and uh, technologies for life extension. It's all so fascinating. 
and mm. it's it's probably the only way we're actually going to be able to live in space. Mm. So, yeah, might as well get used to it. I'm, of course, super attracted to the apocalyptic dystopia. I think everyone is. We all just want to know how it ends. <laughs> I want to know how it ends. My biggest regret about not living forever is not getting to see how humanity comes to its final conclusion. Like, that's what I really want to know. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a cra- I'm feeling crazy. <laughs> so, uh, where do you see your writing going at this point? Do you, do you think you're going to be moving into long-form pieces? Do you think you'll be... Have you done books? I didn't actually check. I, I, I'm assuming, but probably... I haven't published any, I haven't published any books. No, I've, um, I've written probably 15 or 20 full length plays, written dozens and dozens and dozens of short plays. Um, those have been published. Um, a lot of those have been published. A lot of these work, this work has been produced. Um, Hmm. but yeah, I actually, I, I wrote a book because I wanted to see if I could write a book and I haven't done anything with it and I may never, because I'm looking back, you know, it's like, oh, I don't know. But then I've been working on something else that would be long form. And I just got kind of an idea of how I could structure it the other day. And I was feeling daunted because I was like 7,000 words in on this story. And I'm thinking, how do I build on this? And then I was like, oh, I can I can like totally pivot to this other aspect. Hmm. And then so I'm thinking about I'm thinking about that a little hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Long form stuff. Um, there's so many ideas there's just so many ideas to write about and to think about. Uh, William Faulkner talked about how like the biggest problem was that there was just not enough time to write all of the stories that he wanted to write. Yeah. And sometimes I feel that way uh, in Hamilton. Do you know the musical, the show Hamilton? I've heard of it. I haven't seen uh, it. Great show. If you listen to the soundtrack, that's the show. It's the whole show. It's the, anyway, brilliant. My son and I listen to Hamilton all the time. Um, <laughs> and he's like, mom, why is it okay to say the F word when I'm singing along to Hamilton? And I'm like, I don't know, hon, I don't make the rules. <laughs> but Hamilton, so, um, Aaron Burr says to Hamilton, why do you write like you're running out of time? Like you're running out of time. And I, I feel like that sometimes too. It's like, there's just, there's so much to think about. There's so much to read. There's so hmm. much to write. There's so many hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of just keep yourself up all night trying to figure out yeah. what the intersection is between all of the ideas that you have. So I don't, I don't know what's next. I'm open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll I love that. I love that attitude. Yeah. I, that's, that's, uh, I don't know if it's an attitude. Maybe it's just a state of being because that's how I think that if everybody was like that, uh, then the world problems would be solved because we'd all be so uh, obsessed with trying to produce greater and greater things and more and more greater things that we wouldn't have time to destroy everything but maybe right and just talk to each other about things yeah yeah you know i just i'm always interested in i mean some weird stuff like i'm always in like what's the furthest we can push this how far can we push this idea i have this um Hmm. goal when i'm when i'm writing plays there's this one play i've been working on for a while called sanctuary at the oak grove and it's about the goddess diana and it's kind of about the transformation of the goddess diana from the virgin huntress to the virgin mary which is basically how the cult Hmm. of diana in rome moved it moved from 
uh, this violent cult at Lake Nemi, which saw like murder and mayhem yeah. into worship of Mary, the mother and the, the child. How did this happen? You know, we like, how did culture at the time uh, take all Diana's weapons and power and turn her into this mother? And is there power in the mother as well? So that's what my story is about. But as I'm writing it, like every time I got stuck, I thought to myself, what is the craziest thing I could do next? What's the furthest I could push this idea? How off the deep end can I go with this? And what I ended up with was like really quite a quite a romp of a play that huh. just is always taking turns, taking turns and being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like I want it to almost move too fast for you to ask any questions. I just want you to be like kind of wrapped up in it. Huh. Um, but I feel that way sometimes with ideas. Like when I'm working on a piece. Like, what's the, what is the end of this idea? What's all the way off the end of the runway of this idea? Okay. And then figure out what that is and, and track back. That's how I ended up with the, um, the, the whole work product about trans ideology was the more I pushed the idea of like, what, what is it? What is trans? If, uh, if women cannot be defined by a bi biological reality, like what is the end result of this thing? And where I landed was like, I mean, totally off the deep end. It's like, you don't need women womb transplants. And I wrote a satirical hmm. play called how to sell your gang rape baby for parts that pushed these ideas <laughs> as far as wow. they could go. Yeah. Yeah. And hmm. it was funny. I, I won most offensive in the offensive theater festival. So, and I, I performed in this play. Um, it was fun. I, you know, solid comedy. Um, some nights audiences were just like, uh, and some yeah. nights they were hysterical laughing. But recently the, the NHS in England is starting a study as to whether or not womb transplants can be done to trans women. So, and that was in my play. And that was that is not that is now not unreality. That is actual reality. It's not satire that the NHS is considering transplanting, you know, wombs into men. Mm -hmm. That's so. So then, you know, if you push that idea all the way, maybe the maybe the goal is complete obsolescence of women. Mm -hmm. You could push it that far. Yeah. Um, and in recent years, it seems like the the further you push it that eventually seems to come to pass. Like there was the, there was the goal of adding the like no map kind of folks to the um, yeah. LGBTQIAP concept. And two, there was a there's huge a two in there back. and then a couple A's. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Gonna yeah, yeah but the MAP community is kind of interesting. But I, yeah. I looked into that, and I, I spoke with a sex researcher, one of the foremost sex researchers in the world on pedophilia, and he made a very st solid case that it's better to have them out in the open because it, we can actually measure that it's actually hardwired into these people than casting them out into some dark corner where they don't, they, the, all these young people don't get the help that they need. So there is, there's actually nuance in that most offensive idea right there, in that uh, minor attracted person idea. Sure, and far we just, right, and look how far that idea gets pushed. So like yeah. the, the further you push that idea, the crazier off the deep end it goes to everything that you would think was traditionally inherent in the culture. Mm -hmm. Also this idea, like when you talk to um, 
biologists these days and like neurologists and maybe not neurologists anyway, um, how do we even have free will anymore? Or are we pretty much just convinced that every choice we make is entirely deterministic? And if every choice we make is entirely deterministic, then what's the difference between saying that we have no free will because of our brain chemistry and we have no free will because God is making us do everything exactly how, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Like, like what are we called? Like the only difference is capital G, right? So, um, Mm. it doesn't like the definition of the, uh, omnipotent overarching entity is the same. It's just, we're calling it something different. Like the idea, like the people who say that we're in a computer simulation. Yeah. Okay. Like that's not new. That's yeah. God, right? That's the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I find that fascinating too, that we just keep renaming yeah. the thing that we believe is in total control of us so that we do not have to take personal responsibility for ourselves, our culture, and our actions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, without free will, what do we do with the justice system? I mean, there's huge implications when we say that we don't have free will. And then it's just Kafka's penal colony, like just ship them over the wall. Hmm. And right on their backs. I just have that image in my head. Tattoo the, the, yeah, I can't get that out of my head either. It's it's like the spit where the person is just, the crime is tattooed on their body over and over and over again. I was reading the hunger artist this morning. So. Is that that's the Kafka thing? Yeah, Where, what happens yeah. in that one? Is it very yeah. Kafkaesque? Oh, I was reading it because, well, sure, because yeah, it's Kafka. It's the definition. Um, I was reading it because of this young woman in the Netherlands who just starved herself to death, and I thought, like, I wonder if that's similar to. And I decided that I wasn't going to write about it at all. But so I was looking at because uh, it's just too horrible. Um, I'm opposed to suicide in all its forms. So um, I, I think life is a gift. I think life is, every life is a, is a chance to experience joy and love and light, even, even just for a moment. My grandmother had a, um, a sidebar. She had a baby that was born and they said it was going to die right away. Mm. She told me the story way late in her life. Um, so she was in the hospital. They said the baby boy was, he wasn't going to make it and they whisked him away and they told her that he died. So they said, do you want to hold him? And she said, no, she said, no. And they took the baby and he died. Um, you know, maybe he was sold into slavery. I have no idea. Um, sorry, that's a terrible joke. I guess it could be true. So uh, this idea that she didn't, but she didn't want to hold the baby. And this was a huge regret. This mm. haunted her that she didn't hold this baby. I, I feel like if, in, if, if, if even only for a second, the child had experienced a mother's love, even if only for a second, then that is a life that is worthwhile. Hmm. Any life with the, the opportunity for love like that i think is um so i think is i think that's the only point i think that's the only reason to be alive is to experience love you know so what? i was reading you, the hunger artist went, and i decided not can to i just pause for just one moment 
It just say that yeah. in the span of about 10 minutes, he went from like, gang, rape, gang rape, baby disposal <laughs> to a very touching story about mother's love. <laughs> that's my, that's my brand. <laughs> I don't know if gender that's, is a spectrum, but your, your sense of reality sure does have a I know. It's, a it really, it goes all over the place. Yeah, I didn't. I went to art school, so anything that I'm doing with regard to uh, journalism and writing this kind of this kind of work is entirely informed by an artistic perspective. Hmm. What? What? Could you could uh, encapsulate that? What is the artistic perspective? The artistic perspective is that um, is is it goes back to the idea of honesty of you know just being really honest in every moment. And expressing uh, the emotional reality, not as though it's you know necessarily accurate in some sort of objective way, but acknowledging its existence and 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 having that be part of it, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. <laughs> I just don't know what else we're doing out here. Yeah, if not trying to communicate in a real human way there's the there's the work that is all about outrage and driving up twitter numbers and yeah yelling at everybody um and i guess that's all good for the bottom line hmm. i don't get paid by click though so <laughs> um yeah. i think that there's really an opportunity to communicate with people and and share the reality of of these human lives that are so fragmented increasingly and where we're so separated. Um, I was talking to some of the editors at the Federalist recently about air, you know, the AirPods and how infuriating it is to end up in the, in the grocery store and like everyone's got AirPods on. And, you know, I'm so like, when I get to the checkout, I'll take my AirPods out because I want to like, have a human moment with the person who is checking out my groceries. I want to like experience the reality that we are experiencing in that moment. I don't want the moment that we exist within with other people to just be these like passing by moments. Hmm. Um, yeah. So we used to always have this thing, David and I, uh, where we'd talk about if you had a fast forward machine, like, you know, so you're waiting in line for the movies or whatever, and it's like, oh, would this be would this be the time to use the fast forward machine? Now, the trick with the fast forward machine is anything could happen in the interim that you have fast forwarded. So you could come out on the other side and like you're missing a leg, and you're like, oh, what the fuck happened? I don't know. It was the fast forward machine. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, like, I think people would fast forward most of their lives. I think you'd just fast forward everything. You'd be like, this isn't important. This isn't important. This is just waiting in line. Huh. Uh, this is just, I'm buying my groceries, you know, this time I'm just on the subway. I could really just get to work faster. If I use the fast forward machine, you'd lose so much. And I think that you'd use it. You'd be like, Oh, I just want to get to the end of this thing. I want to get to the end of the work day. I just want to go home. I just wanted this or that. Um, Get to the end of this season um, of Sopranos. Over whatever it is, you know, and then, then your life is over and you fast forward the whole thing because you didn't take any time in the little stupid moments to like exist in the reality of your life yeah. with, with the people who people that reality with you. So 
to to get back to what I was trying to articulate with <laughs> you going from from uh, gang rape baby selling to gang rape uh, babies to, to touching grandma dead on arrival regret. babies yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. and those both of those statements makes sense and have value because of the impact that they give in that human connection because they elicit a response the the artistic mindset is eliciting a response and not just eliciting outrage not just listening in a manipulative sense but eliciting a response of, of pleasure or enjoyment or that that then uh fills up the moment that we're sharing with something more than just the moment mm-hmm. that we're sharing i guess it has an additive yeah whether it's like grotesque laughter so. or like weeping motherhood uh, stuff. Yeah, it's the it's just, just the experience of of you know this experiencing this life together. Mm-hmm. Yeah.